Welcome to the Naked Adult Podcast. This is episode 25. Um, beyond honored to have Yosha back here with me. I've looked up to you for months now since we interacted on Clubhouse. I've been going through your work. I've been religiously following the Society of Mind uh, discussions we also do in the morning. It gives me a lot of perspective from uh, an empirical viewpoint as to the sort of uh, pseudo-esoteric and exoteric mind that I have myself. It gives me a good a way to functionally see things. Um, it seems as if every scientist of some sort or every thinker has a model or theory of everything. Um, I recently heard that uh, Eric Weinstein came with geometric unity and it seems to be his uh, you know, w- work for the world. And I was wondering whether you also have, because you're so renowned and so honorable, um, I was wondering if you have a theory of everything for the universe or if you're still working on it. And if you plan to not publish it simply, simply because it could be a subjective theory of experience, a theory of everything. Hmm. I suspect that everybody has to have something like a theory of everything, even if they're not consciously aware of it. You need to have some kind of integrated model of the universe. And in many people, I think it's an indexical model where they have basically all their perception going on and then they just point at the structure of their perception without having a second order understanding of how this structure is made up. And then there are some people which don't really trust their perception. And so they try to go to first principles to understand uh, how the perception works on on one side and on the other one, uh, how systems that can generate patterns that we can perceive and make sense of might work. So what could be the possible structure of the physical universe that we are part of? And uh, this already uh, now almost presupposes some kind of metaphysics. So uh, the way in which I uh, dissect the relationship between observer and universe, but I guess we all are aware of the space of possible theories there. Difference between Eric and me is that I think Eric uh, has the sense that he is one of the few people who actually understand how the universe works. And that must be very frustrating for him. And uh, I don't think that there is anything in my understanding that is very special. It's uh, just that I am pretty stubborn and have difficulty to believe other people uh, what they believe about reality, especially since most of them have just pieced it together from things that they heard or read somewhere from people who also didn't fully understand it. So a lot of the teaching that I get uh, in school and university is basically some kind of mythology that is divorced from the thinking of the people that first came up with the ideas. and. In some sense, I lack a classical education. I grew up in a cave full of books and read lots and lots of things, not always in the right order. And it means that I um, had to find my own path into this whole forest of ideas. And when we try to understand an idea, it's crucial that we uh, also understand how this idea was born. So not just what is the gist of a conclusion that somebody drew in uh, the course of their thinking or learning or experimentation, but what gave them the idea that this might be the right question to pursue in the first time, in the first place, right? Not just how do you build a, a radio, but what gives you the idea that you should put this arrangement of parts into motion to see uh, whether it works as a radio. 
And I found that uh, school never prepared us for this kind of thinking. So the underlying structure of the universe that makes it possible for uh, building a radio in it is not obvious. And it, uh, the things that we learn in school about electromagnetism is, uh, is not sufficient to uh, uh, get the idea that electromagnetism should be a thing in the first place, right? How do you discover that? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I try to get back and recover these ideas. When I figure something out, it's uh, usually I notice that I'm late to the party and the parties get uh, smaller and smaller in some sense. So this is the way in which I can measure my own progress, but <laughs> uh, it's not that I uh, figure out things that other people haven't figured out. It's, it's just that I notice that when I read after I figure something out that uh, I can usually pinpoint the corner in the space of ideas that I'm currently exploring. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about um, my own epistemology and metaphysics, um, when we try to figure out what's the case, we usually only can do this within closed symbol games that we completely control. That is with the mathematics that we can uh, build up by ourselves. And when we explore the outside world, we are in a situation that is similar to someone who looks at a screen and tries to reverse engineer the source code that is behind the screen without being able to open the machine. And also with being very restricted in the interface that they can be using to figure out what's behind the screen. Mm -hmm. But um, we can describe what's on the screen as a sequence of states based on the assumption that we somehow are able to um, maintain memories that are somewhat reliable. So uh, that is something that we cannot completely guarantee but uh, without the assumption that we are in a universe that can retain memory or that we implement in such a way that we can retain memory and there is a way to make these uh, memories reliable to some degree, we cannot model the world at all. And so we end up with uh, being a world that is made of transitions between states. How can we describe the transitions between states? This is basically a function. A state is a, an, a set of um, patterns. We can describe patterns as bits. A bit is a yes-no decision. And there's always going to be a finite number of bits that it can resolve. And there's the way in which these bits are being translated into each other. And I can always find such a transition. And um, th this basically gets me into a computationalist paradigm. Uh, computationalism is just the modern form of mechanism. Mechanism being an, an ancient philosophy that explains that the world is not a conspiracy but it's made of um, causally closed systems that at the lowest level are not intentional. There is no agency at the lowest level. It's, it's just um, machines. And the modern notion of machine is not um, parts that are extended in space and push and pull at each other, uh, but it's um, functions that I can describe that uh, explain consistently how adjacent states of the universe are correlated. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, uh, once I have the, the commitment to a kind of mathematical language that is constructive, I can uh, uh, take a step uh, further and try to understand the role of the observer and the nature of the observer. And uh, the observer could basically be outside of the universe and share an interface with it. But if the observer can influence the universe, uh, then the, uh, the observer per definition becomes part of it. And uh, when we think about the observer being implemented outside of the universe, it just means that there is a parent universe that uh, implements um, the observer. And um, you can 
go up this chain of universes until you get to a common implementation, right? So we get to a description in which there is something that moves the universe along, something that Aristotle might have called the prime mover. And um, we don't know what put this um, prime mover into the void and made it do things. It's quite embarrassing, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the simplest explanation, the ones that takes the fewest bits to encode, is that existence might be the default. So everything that could exist might be implemented. And I think to exist means to be implemented. That is realized in such a way that you can describe it as a sequence of states that transition into each other. Now, uh, when you look at what an object is, I don't think that there are objects as such in the universe. The universe is whatever it is, uh, what projects patterns at my systemic interface, so I can make sense of it. That is also the case if I am part of it and implemented within the dynamics of the universe. So I, I am basically a subset of the universe that has the properties to make sense of it. And to make sense of it means I make a cohesive model that uh, where I can interpret everything. And to make such a cohesive model, I cannot model the universe as a whole. I need to take it apart into components that I model independently so that it become manageable. I introduce boundaries between parts of my model. And these are the boundaries between things. A thing, again, is a sequence of states or a state of spaces which we, uh, between the object can transition and the evolution of the object describes some envelope within uh, I want the object to remain to be that object. And uh, if the object ever leaves that envelope, it ceases to be that kind of object. And again, the object is a notion that I introduce in my own mind. And um, to say this uh, is a human being, uh, uh, what the boundary of the envelope of that human being object is uh, depends on the context. So for instance, maybe this human being gets traumatized or um, it uh, undergoes a huge transition or it grows up and at this point it becomes a different human being. And this might be one envelope that I draw around it by depending on the state space by which I classify this particular human being. Or I could also say it's, it remains this human being until it dies and uh, its body ceases to be a host for a mind. And in, in that case, uh, I have a slightly different notion of the same object. Causality is introduced by the interaction between these objects. In a totally unitary object, there is no causality. There is just a global transition function. But once I describe the universe as separate objects, I get um, a, a freedom into the object um, because uh, into the description of the universe because I uh, ignore all the other parts. I keep them as being variant. Uh, the objects that I look at are my invariants that I keep in my model and my awareness. And then uh, I uh, describe how the evolution of these um, uh, attended objects changes uh, once an interaction takes place. And um, this description of the change or evolution based on the interaction with other objects introduces the notion of causality. So it's a necessary aspect of a description of the universe as separate things. And this uh, description as separate things is only uh, valid to a certain degree. That is, um, at some point, this description of these macrostatic objects falls apart because the universe uh, is uh, itself evolving and this global thing, in some sense, goes out of whack with my models. And uh, the way in which um, my models less and less describe what the universe is doing corresponds to the notion of entropy that we have. Right? The universe is moving along, and the ways in which I uh, discover order in it apply less and less to it. Mm -hmm. and it becomes harder and harder to recover the order 
and thereby interact with the universe. Because the reason why we make these models uh, is to solve a control problem. That is how to keep the observer stable and to maintain the interaction of the observer within the universe, right? So our yeah. models are largely control models. Okay, so you were talking about existence as being this default mode. Um, and so I was wondering, is it sentience within existence? Is it um, the awareness component within consciousness, which is existence here? Or is it Dasein just being as existence being default? Because oftentimes people conflate the, the word existence with sentience, awareness, consciousness. So I was wondering what, what's existence within this statement of existence being default? I think the sense of realness is this uh, experientiality is not uh, necessarily connected to an object existing because we can experience things that are not implemented beyond the fact that we can experience them, which means they are implemented in the mind as perceptual content. And I, I'm not quite sure about Heidegger's uh, terminology, so I haven't uh, redigested Heidegger since I read him first. I think I would have to reparse him first to make sense of his notions and to uh, pinpoint or translate his ontology into mine. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. I just don't really know what Heidegger's terms mean at this point. Uh, but when I uh, look at my uh, interpretation of um, sentience and um, consciousness, they're not the same thing. I take sentience to be the uh, notion that an observer is aware of its own relationship to the universe, its own existence as an observer, and uh, its own actions and directedness, its own intentionality. So it's basically the notion that the system knows what it's doing. And uh, you get to be sentient if the control problem that you have to solve is so complicated that you need to make a model of yourself and your relationship to the problem that you try to solve. Because this influences the way in which you can solve the problem, which you can perceive what the problem is in the first place, the things that will satisfy you about having solved the problem in a particular way, right? All these aspects require you to reverse engineer yourself. This is, of course, not related to consciousness. Um, consciousness is a particular way to uh, experience the relationship that you have to the universe. And the weird thing is that consciousness is to us the primary thing because we are uh, primarily conscious beings. We experience ourselves as conscious beings. We don't experience ourselves as physical beings. For us, physics is a distant mythology. And it's frustrating to me to uh, talk to philosophers uh, who take electrons and uh, particles and all these things as given, as if they've seen them or if somebody had seen them, right? They, told, uh, they learned about this in school. They mostly don't really understand what it is. You cannot make uh, any... Uh, derivations uh, from this, uh, unless you understand what it actually uh, refers to. That is the way in which we describe information moves between locations that we can discern in the universe. And you also talked about this um, observer's bias thing, which reminds me of the observer's expectancy bias. And it often makes me wonder whether every empirical experiment that scientists or people conduct whether it always has a subjective bias, just, just because us as default, us as an observer is a, is a subjective being. So is there always a subjective influence in an empirical data being arrived, being arrived from an um, empirical experiment? Or 
it's not um, the subject is not always given as a self okay. the self is is a model that you create in your own mind and for the most part this model is stable but it doesn't need to be stable right we can put ourselves into a state where there is no observer this means uh, that uh, you uh, there's no distinction between um, me and a third person or no person that is there is just a model of the universe going on and uh, tracking patterns that this model is entangled with by um, evolving the uh, things that are being generated in, in the observing mind. And in this state, belief is not a verb. There is no relationship between uh, a self that constitutes itself as the thing that believes. There is just uh, the modeling system. And every uh, modeling system with isomorphic properties is going to form the same models uh, if it has the same entanglements. Uh, with the system that it models. What about right, so, the slit experiment? Uh, would it purely be analogical if there is no self that is exploring the particles moving? The self is not exploring anything. The self is the story that's being generated. It's a passenger. It cannot do uh, that's uh, something that becomes apparent when we start deconstructing the self and playing a little bit with it. And uh, we notice that the self is along for the right because it's the way in which the agent makes sense of what it's doing, right? It's a control model. It allows you to uh, remember uh, what uh, the entire system did at some point, but the self is not the agent. The self is no one. The self is a narrative. And uh, so it, the self cannot explore. The self has a recording uh, or a recon it's not even a recording. It's a reinvention every time that you try to remember it based on stored cues. And uh, it's, so it's able to create the best story that the system can tell about what it did in the past and what it intends to do right now and what it might be doing in the future. And it's always being created anew at each point. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, I was wondering, um, because sometimes I've, I've read that certain arithmeticians and uh, scientists and philosophers would often regard geometry as this objective language of the universe uh, upon which everything functions. And um, during uh, hypnagogic experiences, uh, oftentimes I get geometrical hallucinations. So I would, uh, I went on internet and I looked at different subjective accounts to see whether everyone was having somewhat the same uh, pattern-based hallucinations. And a lot of people said that they see the exact same lattice patterns, only the Tetris effects, which are supposed to be uh, images from your short-term memory and your long-term memory seem to be personal to you, so they're subjective in a sense. But uh, these like geometrical hallucinations and quote-unquote animal imagery that people sometimes see within their hypnagogic experiences seem to be similar across every subjective mind. And so I was wondering whether if we were to like objectively or somehow empirically see this, whether it makes sense that even when we reach an altered state of consciousness, from a normal state of consciousness, we still perceive geometry as this sacred language. So I was wondering whether you think this, whether geometry or let's say even arithmetics is some sort of a universal language of understanding of symbolism of everything. I think that mathematics is a symbol game or all the symbol games. And you could also say that uh, mathematics is the set of all languages. And mathematicians uh, start with exploring the simplest ones, the formal languages where everything is well-defined. And you explore uh, 
building these languages up into more and more complex things. And yet the languages of mathematics are still fairly simple. That is, it's very hard in them to talk about the world that we experience. And uh, the philosophical languages are uh, typically starting out with natural language and uh, truth is not very well defined in, in these languages. So it's very hard to say something in the languages of the philosophers that is strictly true. And uh, in a way, we are trying to close this gap. And uh, right now, I think that the main suspicion is to close this gap. You need to automate the way in which uh, a mind uses natural language. And this could be outside of the realm of the human mind because it's quite limited. And we may need to have a mind that is, uh, can scale up better, that um, has more acuity, that uh, can prove the properties even of uh, very small and uh, minute things. And this could be an AI, right? So in some sense, AI is, uh, uh, besides the uh, big important engineering and uh, advancing statistics discipline, it's also a philosophical project. And this philosophical project is about understanding its own nature by explaining it in a constructive language. But it's also the project of unifying philosophy and mathematics by providing the missing link and automatic mind with well-defined properties. And um, when we think about how uh, such a system would make sense of reality, how a language makes sense of reality, we can start uh, out with the systems that, uh, for instance, describe number theory. You take something like Piano's axioms, you uh, can take uh, Boolean logic, and uh, once you make these systems com uh, complex enough, they become Turing machines, which means you can map everything into what they are doing, and you can map between all these machines into each other. They are all automata with the same power. You might end up with different representational formalisms, but uh, they turn out to be equivalent at some level. That is, there exists some mapping that you can compute between the different structures that you use for representing a model and the functions that you use for uh, advancing this, uh, these different representational states along. Uh, when you have too many parts to count, that, uh, then your descriptions as discrete rules that you could describe with a grammar, uh, where you apply uh, logical operators and so on, are no longer very efficient. And you have too many parts to count, you need to identify high-level dynamics that where you can approximate the behavior of the system in the aggregate. So mathematics, uh, you have this, for instance, when you look at uh, number series and you see where these series converge. And uh, in practice, when we have domains of too many parts to count, we look for operators that converge for very, very big numbers, where basically it doesn't really matter whether you have trillions or, or hundreds of uh, trillions uh, or just billions of particles, it, uh, the behavior is pretty much the same, right? And this is where you uh, have your uh, infinities coming in. It's not possible to actually build an infinity because you cannot, in finite number of steps, uh, assemble infinitely many parts, but uh, you can uh, assemble so many especially if you are so large and big with respect to the components that we are made of, like molecules or elementary particles, uh, that uh, basically just taking a spoonful of sand is already too many parts to count for the most part, for, the, for most practical purposes that we have, right? So when we describe the behavior of the spoonful of sand, we are uh, beginning to resort to geometric operators. And geometry is exactly the set of, uh, of operators that we can apply on too many parts to count, th those that work. And um, the simple geometry takes place on a line, right? So this is equivalent to a number line that is continuous. 
instead of discrete number line of integers, we just try to fill in all the gaps. And then we invent operators by which we can shift things around on this line. And if we want to turn this line into a plane, we need to fold it into some kind of lattice, right? And we can also fold it in a lattice that in the limit is filling in all the gaps. And it doesn't need to uh, be arbitrarily highly resolved. It just needs to be good enough. So the uh, difference between what we are modeling and uh, the difference between what we are observing becomes um, negligible or uh, it's uh, so far uh, uh, or the system is uh, nonlinear uh, in, in such a way that uh, we cannot track the observations with an arbitrary high resolution, right? When you, for instance, try to make a model of the weather, you will end up with something that always is going to be a weather, but not necessarily the weather around you because there's too much information that you would need to gather about uh, the weather around you to be able to model it into very far into the future. So I also had one uh, really good question that I've been thinking of about for some time. Uh, people keep telling me about this Bayesian brain processing system and uh, how it supposedly has roots in Kantian theories. Um, and I was wondering, and I think Anil State also has a really good uh, paper about the cybernetic brain where, where he uh, tends to explain the Bayesian processing uh, paradigm. Um, I was wondering what are your thoughts on the Bayesian brain and whether it's an actual good predictive processing model that can be utilized in the contemporary um, theoretical work, if any. Um, Bayesianism basically says that once you have a theory and you have new evidence, uh, how do you need to update the theory to accommodate the evidence? And uh, I find it tempting to use this principle in school. So instead of uh, checking whether your student has uh, sucked up to you and is able to uh, uh, reproduce every word that you said or uh, believes uh, every theory that you threw at the student based on what the student knows before they enter the class and the evidence that you present them in the class, uh, how far, in which direction, how much have they updated their theories. And it should not be too little and not too much. There is one way that is basically exactly the right way. And uh, that is the idea of Bayesianism. Uh, there is uh, the idea of the Bayesian brain is uh, probably somewhat tautological. Uh, if we find systematic um, deviations from how the brain updates uh, based on the information that's being presented from this uh, mathematical ideal uh, that cannot be uh, explained by, uh, say, physical limitations of the brain or uh, biases that had to be introduced by uh, social constraints, for instance, uh, we are a state building species that uh, has that benefits more from working in lockstep than getting things right. Uh, maybe there are systematic biases in our cognition that make our brain less than Bayesian. But uh, outside of this, um, I, I think uh, evolution should converge on something that is uh, updating in the optimal way. And Bayesianism is uh, in some sense a mathematically derived uh, limit in, in which way uh, the, uh, a system should update its models when presented with new evidence. I'm not sure uh, to which degree Kant has actually influenced uh, the thinking of modern cognitive scientists. I do think that Kant was a cognitive scientist, but uh, his writing is abysmal. If you uh, read him uh, in German, uh, basically you notice that he's writing like a bad coder. It's spaghetti code. There are very few uh, useful comments in his code. He just pushed all the insights that were necessary for him into this language 
and uh, adds it into longer and longer sentences. And very few people were able to actually parse this in the right way. And this uh, turned Kant into the Nostradamus of cognitive science. That is, uh, he makes all these enormous prophecies and uh, these prophecies are correct, but only in hindsight. So uh, <laughs> once you have uh, some understanding of uh, a domain, you can go back to Kant and uh, pinpoint where he figured it out or most of it out. But uh, I'm not aware of that much for, for uh, somebody read Kant as a student and then sat down and uh, wrote some uh, computational model or uh, uh, developed a paradigm in cognitive science uh, that uh, moved uh, them along. Instead, in uh, philosophy, it has created a few uh, communities of people that do Kant exegesis from different perspectives. And the people that uh, invest into uh, reading Kant uh, typically don't get to the point where they uh, become uh, neo-Kantians and uh, insert themselves into the current discourse as Kantians, but rather it's, uh, it becomes an insular thing where they are uh, part of a, a certain Kant school and, and have invested most of their theory into a particular kind of interpretation of uh, a particular thinker. So, uh, I really think that uh, like Wittgenstein and uh, it's who has done a lot of harm to philosophy because philosophers who didn't understand what computers were, which um, Wittgenstein understood before Turing apparently, and before they existed, which is, is a really big thing, right? Uh, you can understand Turing uh, and uh, Wittgenstein once you understand all these ideas of a computer. But before you do, and uh, especially when you uh, try not to, uh, to understand them and stay out of all this weird discourse that these nerds are having over there, um, you are uh, bound to uh, interpret this in the wrong way. And uh, so it uh, led to this uh, linguistic turn in philosophy and ordinary language philosophy and so on. I think that have harmed the field. And uh, similar things might have happened with Kant. But uh, the good thing with Kant is that he seems to be less accessible on the surface than uh, Wittgenstein, so he hasn't uh, been doing that much harm. People couldn't, just could not read him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you also grew up, uh, I suppose you grew up in Germany. Uh, and uh, of course, German philosophy is just massive and, and vast and, and just amazing to exhaust. And I was wondering when people read, let's say, a text in German as opposed to its translation in English, do you often think that the words that the German philosophical texts are able to interpret are often misinterpreted in the English ones? And maybe that's why sometimes people have hard time understanding German idealists or German philosophers, or let's say even any other language, French philosophers, just because of the language uh, gap or the, the problem in translation. Yes. Uh, when I uh, was at MIT, I often ended up uh, sitting behind uh, a very smart um, a Jewish guy who uh, had been with the MIT for a very, very long time. I won't say his name because uh, maybe he doesn't like what uh, I uh, want to cite him with. He has uh, just read a monograph and said that the Americans have always mistranslated the German word Seele as mind. And uh, I told him, well, um, this is uh, obviously correct, but uh, it also makes sense because they have no soul. He <laughs> said, yes, but don't let them, <laughs> let them know it. They will burn you at the stake. <laughs> There's actually the the 
German word for understanding is the understanding as well, which to me as a, as a concept in mind plays a fundamental role, at least from a phenomenological standpoint. Uh, but uh, from a linguistic structure, English and German are not that far apart, right? Uh, English, in some sense, is a bastardized German that uh, is a little bit weird uh, because it has outrun its uh, spelling, right? The pronunciation in American English is very far from the way it's being spelled, which has created some weird effects. And there is also a, a strange thing that happened to the vocabulary. There is a, a higher degree of Latinization in the vocabulary than in German, which uh, seems to indicate that uh, the civilization that was uh, invaded by the Romans did not have notions of many of these words and has not reinvented themselves. So in some sense, you have an everyday vocabulary where you have English words that are um, mostly Germ uh, Germanic words that um, are, are still in use. And uh, then everything that has to do with slightly more complicated things like uh, legal uh, aspects, um, mental things, words like consciousness, uh, sentience, and so on, uh, all these words uh, are borrowed from Latin. That, that is a weird thing. But uh, apart from that, uh, in terms of the grammatical structure of the language, in terms of the metaphors that are being used, it's not that hard to translate between English and German, I think. So it's more a cultural difference sometimes that comes into play when understanding things, the way things are being approached, the pioneering spirit uh, of American English and American thinking, this uh, willingness to understand everything from a fresh perspective and throw away everything that might have existed in a certain space and try to see if you can reconstruct it. And there's also, of course, uh, the issue that um, uh, Germany um, has lost its mind at some point. I think that with the November Revolution, um, the uh, funding of the universities in, in Germany had changed. That is, it was no longer the kings who had oversight over the universities and weeded out the way in which thinking was being funded and uh, selected interesting minds, but it was turned into a rule-based system. It was now decided by committees what would be researched. And so in some sense, um, Germany became somewhat brain dead. And, uh, the things that happened until um, the uh, 30s uh, was almost like it had this chicken running along based on the momentum that it already had, but um, more or less lost over time. And then um, these, this big disaster of uh, fascism happened in uh, Germany. And uh, fascism was not interested in the cultures that existed before it. It saw them as uh, things that were just a distraction or an aberration or something that uh, uh, was even alien to the thing that I wanted to build. So there was an idea to uh, build a new way of thinking for everything that would, should be efficient and optimal and everything else that existed before that had to be sterilized and burned down. Mm -hmm. And uh, this led to uh, the exile or uh, the eradication of many of the most important thinkers in Germany who happened to be Jewish. and. Uh, uh, also for the existing German thinkers, uh, there was only a monoculture permitted that was compatible with the relatively vulgar philosophy of fascism. And after um, fascism had run its course and uh, led into a big catastrophe for uh, not only the Germans, but primarily also for those around Germany, uh, and uh, uh, it came to its big crash, um, Germany was divided. 
and the western half as we all know uh, was uh, basically rebuilt by the elites and uh, germany was um, indoctrinated with a very thorough humanism and the most edgy thing in terms of philosophy that came out of this humanism was habermas it's not that interesting <laughs> and uh, Eastern Germany was even worse off because uh, they became uh, dialectic materialist, which was a vulgar uh, um, Marxist philosophy, uh, which meant that every idea had to be evaluated uh, with respect to how well the author recognized the rule of the working class and uh, the historical uh, determinism that uh, had to pervade everything. It's uh, not too dissimilar to some things that currently happen in the US with a different ideological um, meaning. And, it's a very depressing thing when this happens to academia and academia and academic thinking is not able to preserve corners of thoughts where uh, you can think clearly. And uh, so all this uh, deeper uh, hermeneutical traditions in some sense got lost in Germany and became vulgarized. And uh, there were some corners of analytic thought that were left that basically only on the surface pretended to uh, be compatible with ideology and uh, below that were more mathematical but uh, it was a relatively small community and so i think that since uh, um, fascism there was not that much coming out of germany in terms of philosophy with a little uh, bit of a, a cybernetic movement that was interesting in the 1970s and uh, that coincided uh, largely with the cybernetic movements in the soviet union and in the us but um, also cybernet uh, cybernetics burned out and uh, since, um, since this thing happened, most of the German philosophers were actually, I think, American philosophers. Most of the German thinkers, so to speak. German-American. Yeah, but they were not necessarily uh, uh, genetically or culturally German. It was just the intellectual traditions that uh, existed in Germany, I think, were more or less pursued in, in, in the US because they uh, still maintained a space uh, this liberal space of thought in which um, the theories could be developed and exchanged. Mm -hmm. So what would you say were some of your favorite German philosophers, let's say, growing up? Um, when I grew up, I, I think it was, uh, I think it was Kant. I really enjoyed Kant. And uh, later I, uh, I also uh, like uh, um, Spinoza. Not, I don't think that he qualifies as a German philosopher. Uh, I think that uh, Leibniz is, is great, but he's so full of himself. It made him uh, quite inaccessible to me when he was younger. I liked uh, the uh, um, Maverick, like Lametri better. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, Lametri's thinking is not that uh, deep in a way, but it's correct. And he was willing to go against the authorities. And uh, this is something that I, I like about him. And uh, people still see him as the fool today, even though his thinking has prevailed. Um, yeah, oftentimes when people- Hannah Arendt is great. Okay. Uh, yeah, and no, I was going to say that uh, oftentimes, uh, going back to the Bayesian brain question, people often talk about this category theory where the the graph has uh, nodes as object and somehow it deals with object relations. I was wondering, is that also a relevant paradigm model to use or it's another uh, th theoretical uh, theory? Because uh, I come from like, I'm not that uh, aware of the technicalities of, of this thing, but I often question the relevance of different theories and whether 
somehow I can also theoretically imply it in my own creativity or like in my own creative uh, philosophical explorations. I was wondering, would, would you consider category theory, which is gaining some sort of a buzz currently uh, as having some sort of a usefulness or being good uh, model of, of, of uh, object relations? It's just a, a way to systematize the language that we are using, especially in computer science, to uh, talk about uh, how objects are being constructed and the relationships between them. And I think it's a useful movement that is unifying uh, separate fields of modeling. Um, it's probably um, uh, not that useful to, uh, to use it before you have the need for it. So uh, I would suggest that you uh, think about in, in the beginning how to model reality at all and to, to really uh, start building your own models up of how you model. And uh, at some point you stumble on geometry. So for instance, you need space uh, uh, because if you uh, don't live in a space, you probably cannot build observers like ours. So it's not surprising that we find in our, ourselves in something that looks like space. But space by itself, um, I noticed this as a child didn't make sense to me because I didn't know how to make it. I didn't know how to make a continuous space because it's not computable, it's not constructive. It's not hard to make something that looks a lot like a space. And the easiest way to uh, make something that looks a lot like a space is to take some kind of lattice. That is uh, a set of locations that are discernible, that can store state and ways in which this information can travel between them. And if you make this very regular, uh, and uh, you can end up with a structure uh, where information becomes local in the sense that there is a regular uh, lattice of a certain dimensionality, for instance, two-dimensional or three-dimensional or four-dimensional in which the information can travel. And then you can start deriving the way in which the thing can be represented at scale. So how can you group these locations? And this is how you get to geometry. And uh, when you preserve, for instance, um, the uh, relationship that all the uh, components have to each other. You have solid objects. If you are uh, preserving the volume uh, only, then you have liquid objects. If you uh, preserve a ratio uh, between the volume and the pressure, then you have gaseous objects, right? And this is how you come up necessarily to the ways in which we in physics describe the way information travels through the space, even though the space is probably just existing approximately. They also mathematical notions of what you can make in a space. For instance, you cannot tie a knot in two dimensions, right? Try to uh, have a string of paper and you have uh, a, a, a string of thread and you have it on your table and you try not to lift it off the table, you cannot make a knot because it would need to cross, the thread needs to cross itself, which you cannot do in two, two dimensions. You can do this in three dimensions. In four dimensions, you cannot make a knot uh, from a piece of thread because it will, won't stay tangled. You can always fold it and there's always going to be one dimension uh, more uh, over which it can untangle itself, right? This leads to a very interesting conclusion. Certain structures will only be stable in 3D and can only be formed in 3D. And uh, this might be responsible for uh, the mutations of this type why we find ourselves as observers in the 3D space. It's probably not an accident. But uh, the spaces that can be constructed at all and the space that can work at all and the ways in which uh, an observer could make models of these spaces, they are limited by the uh, mathematics that can be constructed. And we can explore this entire space. And uh, I 
uh, when I was a kid, I didn't have much access to mathematics. Um, it was very uh, difficult for me to enjoy doing mathematics and uh, I blame the way in which uh, I was introduced to it. I didn't have mathematics teachers that were mathematicians. Mathematics is in a way taught as if, imagine you would teach music without ever hearing the sound of a, a, a musical instrument and you would uh, never play any instrument and you would never make a song and never sing, right? Music is about the ability to sing and create, construct songs and to understand them and understand what you're doing there. And you build it up from singing or from making sounds and enjoying them. And uh, imagine you just get introduced to notation and you learn how to manipulate this notation. And by grade eight, you can translate chroma, uh, chromatic scales into each other, but uh, you have no understanding what it's good for. And then only the most gifted ones get into the conservatorium where they learn how to play uh, the big masters. And there's only a handful of people which is allowed to compose. And this is the way in which we deal with mathematics. And it's, it's insane, right? It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. And also uh, it's mostly taught by road learning, which doesn't work for me because I get bored too easily. I need to, to make something, I need to understand the structure. And uh, so it was very easy for me to learn how to code. Uh, I, I'm completely self-taught in this regard. And I started in a time where uh, computers were, uh, became just accessible in the early eighties. So I didn't have uh, programs to work with. And so I, wrote my own programs for first uh, 2D graphics and then 3D graphics. And I needed to figure out how to uh, represent objects in space inside of the computer. It was all relatively straightforward and easy to build up. And I always had such big uh, respect for the mathematicians that would have extremely complicated theories to represent space in the right way. And uh, then I, I looked at the stuff and I realized, oh no, uh, the people that uh, did computer graphics just reinvented a lot of the mathematics without Greek letters because they were not part of the ASCII code with which we typed this stuff in. Right? So it's, uh, there is only so many ways in which you can make sense of space in which you can describe um, surfaces in uh, low dimensional spaces and interact with them. And it turns out that our brain probably uh, has discovered uh, similar mathematics at some level. So our brain is best understood as some kind of uh, game engine that is tuning itself to track the patterns on your retina to uh, construct a, a three-dimensional space with a limited resolution. And vision is a sense that combines stuff in a low-dimensional space moving around, right? Uh, efficiently computable geometry uh, with textures where the texture is not really spatially resolved. The texture just is a type of surface that is uh, abundant in a certain region in that space. And then you have colors, which are stationary dimensions. And uh, this is combined, uh, it's dynamic, and this is what we call vision. And this is what 80% uh, of our brain is doing. And uh, so when you describe the geometric patterns that uh, you see in certain mental states, um, this is just the result of that game engine be, uh, being decoupled from your sensory input and then running free and being modulated along a few parameters. And some of these parameters are quite distinct. So for instance, there are um, the Shibipo patterns that are, are characteristic for the art of a certain Amazonian tribe, the Shibipo. Uh, they put this onto ceramics and uh, weave it into uh, carpets, tapestries. And uh, this tribe uh, is also using ayahuasca. And the ayahuasca users all know this pattern because it's a very characteristic thing that happens to their uh, visual cortex 
when they take ayahuasca and uh, with closed eyes have visualizations, these visualizations tend to be overlaid with the same patterns, which means that when you mess uh, up your serotonergic sensors and receptors in a very particular way, using a combination of DMT and hamaline that is uh, only be found in ayahuasca, then you get these very specific interference effects in your visual cortex. And they only happen with ayahuasca in, in this particular way, apparently. And uh, it would be very interesting to make computer simulations. And I suspect if we can really recreate these patterns, we learn something about the architecture of the visual cortex. True. I think there was one uh, Apple co-founder, if I'm not mistaken, who became a Zen Buddhist and then founded this therapy called ILST, which is Intentional Light Self Therapy, which mm -hmm. tries to use like this mechanical uh, lamp sort of object to project some sort of a blue light, which has its own properties it's onto colors of lights. Yes, yeah. and it, it's supposed to activate your pineal gland and, and try to induce some of the same DMT-like visuals without taking DMT. Now, I don't know exactly how, uh, how uh, precise it might be in inducing those uh, visual hallucinations, but I think we can definitely come up with new computational models which can replicate, if anything, those same experiences with using technology as opposed to, let's say, using medicines, which if used in excess could be harmful. Do you think if we uh, like make some sort of a technology, let's say, which can give you the same phenomenological experience and, and the same sort of visuals, would you think get, that would also have some sort of a depreciating effect on, on, on physiology and mentality or, or have some sort of quote-unquote addictive properties as, as these compounds, chemical structures would have? Uh, I think this technology already exists. It struck me when I went to uh, 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 sense of consciousness conferences and uh, related events. There is this community of people which used pulsed light and uh, sounds like uh, binaural sounds and so on to induce trance states. It's basically uh, flashing patterns. Uh, you lay down, you have these um, glasses on that uh, insulate you from uh, uh, ambient light and then they produce light with certain frequencies and arrangements. And uh, your visual cortex is supposed to get entrained with it until you uh, have certain experiences. And uh, then I thought, oh my God, what if you use structured light? Light that is not just pulsing in a certain frequency, but this is uh, using much more detailed structure and entrains itself with the patterns uh, of your visual cortex and then goes into the rest of your brain and induces a trance state in which you experience an alternate reality. And this technology exists, it's called movies. And uh, it's uh, also addictive, right? There's an entire industry that is focused on producing uh, one and a half hour trips uh, that are completely optimized for uh, the ride that people are going through. And the uh, same tri uh, trip uh, gets boring. So people need a new trip, uh, like every month at least. And uh, let's make them, right? It's really an entire industry uh, that it produces trips using structured lights that entrains itself with the visual cortex to produce a trance state that produces almost arbitrary experiences and, and insights and epiphanies and uh, right in, in the human mind. This is the closest that you can get. The, uh, what this thing is not doing is it's not directly affecting you uh, at a, a level of experience where the self is being constructed. It's possible. So there are some movies which go deeper into trance. Kuenis Katsi was, I think, was the first one that I saw in this regard as a child. 
or is um, 15 year old. And um, most movies uh, do this in a slightly less direct way. So there is a way in which you allow to disentangle yourself from the movie and uh, sandbox the experience. But it's uh, arguably not entirely the case, for instance, for horror movies, which are a genre that has been designed to make it hard for you to disentangle yourself from it, right? It's about uh, manipulating the experience itself, I suspect, and experiencing this detachment from the outside reality and being thrown in an alternate one that is intense enough for you to not be able to escape it. And uh, now we also have VR. Um, and while VR is arguably still somewhat of a novelty and it's in, in, in its infancy, it's good enough now. If you use a quest, it's uh, easily catapulting most people into an alternate reality that they can no longer sandbox. So when you are uh, um, balancing on some cliff in VR, it's very hard to escape the sensation that you're indeed looking down at uh, an, an intense abyss that is going to crush you if you lose your footing. Uh, you are muted. Yeah, I feel like with the advanced technology and the VR and everything, we already get to have this sort of immersive experience in the sense that a physiological body exists here, but we're still somehow within the immersive experience of this virtual cyberspace. And it's, it's been uh, like, it's been advancing super fast. We see concerts and, and, and using high level virtual reality to make their audience more immersed into the experiences. And now when we look at, let's say from an AI perspective or a Ray Kurzweil perspective of this, of the, that we should probably not be doing this at some point, uh, we as physiologically, we would be way more affected and mentally we would just be existing within the cyberspace and within the compounds of the cyberspace. And I, I guess that's what Daniel Dennett also emphasizes on that we should never give human consciousness to machine intelligence. Like why not use AI robots and AI systems as just objects, which they are. Like why, why feel the need to give these uh, co co uh, robotic cognitive architectures some sort of emotional element or some sort of uh, sentience, if anything, to make them more than what our use apparently seems to just, uh, you know, lie to that. And I was wondering whether you think that this whole concept of Bostrom's ASI or this transhumanism that comes out of Neuralink, supposedly, do you think that we're, in terms of AI, we're moving towards a hopeful future or more of a dystopian tech-infused uh, future that Ray Kurzweil would often uh, you know, describe it as that we're probably moving towards some sort of tech-infused uh, dystopian uh, civilization? which is often interpreted in science fiction films, so one can always, yeah. Uh, if you uh, look at locusts, right, there are species of grasshopper or a small set of species of grasshopper that have two modes. One where there are relatively few of them and they're part of the normal ecosystem. And uh, if they reach a certain density, something flips and they go into locust mode in which they swarm and uh, eat up all the fields around them and uh, they uh, replicate very, very quickly and they grow more and more and faster. And I suspect when you are a locust, you are in a manic state and uh, you are extremely optimistic with respect to the future of locusts. Soon everything in the universe is going to be locusts and you're going to go to other planets and it's going to be awesome. And 
it's probably best almost right before it's over because there's going to be exponential doubling. And uh, of course it doesn't end well, right? You are going to eat up the fields and uh, you are at light. And I, I think that uh, from the perspective of life on earth, humanity is a blight. We are not killing life on earth. It's almost impossible to sterilize a planet once it's been thoroughly infected with life. But um, we are reducing the complexity of life on the planet. And we do depend on complexity of life on the planet to survive. The um, hominids are not very long-lived species. All our cousin species are basically extinct. We are the only large hominid who is left in numbers. And uh, we haven't been around for all that long. If, um, 20 million years ago, our ancestors were basically squirrels. And this we might not be around for many millions of years. We, we might be around in the present form, maybe just for a few thousands of years. And if you're not very lucky for just a few decades. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think this idea of transhumanism, I like it. It's sweet. It's endearing. It's adorable. And uh, it would be nice if it was true. I, I like this idea that we can go to space, but I don't think it would be very efficient to set monkeys into space. Can you really imagine that there is a, a Starship Enterprise uh, that is uh, in thousand years from now debating who, uh, whom to marry and uh, whom to have affairs with rather and uh, how to uh, organize diversity in the workplace and how much sugar to put into your drink. It is, it's almost as ridiculous as the foundation uh, stories by Asimov where uh, you have uh, 1950s Americans uh, smoking uh, cigarettes uh, or pipes uh, uh, millions of years in the future and uh, perpetuating 1950s American culture. It's, it's not very realistic. I think that far future AI is going to be nothing like human aesthetics if, uh, or far future intelligences. They're, it's going to be very uh, different from us and we will probably not relate to these aesthetics. And uh, human aesthetics are a particular kind of ecological niche. And it's a niche that we are outgrowing. And uh, if we are destroying the ecology in which we can exist in a meaningful way as human aesthetics, then the question remains, what are humans for? Why would we need to be bipedal apes? And uh, why should we identify with being bipedal apes? If we are completely transforming life on Earth into something that is beyond recognition, which doesn't contain large animals anymore, and this is already the case, right? If you capture any kind of land animal that is larger than a rabbit, it's probably a cow or a human. There's almost nothing else left. And uh, also plants are entering some kind of monoculture, large land plants and so on. So there is going to be a shift in the ecosystems. And it's not clear if, if we fit in after this shift has been uh, finished and could, could be that we have only so many years left of a technological civilization. But on the other hand, it is so beautiful to be part of that, to be part of this giant explosion of intelligence and consumption of neck entropy. Right? It's such an amazing party, such an amazing fireworks. There was never a point where a species was so comfortable and where it was so sentient and could do so many things. And uh, one of the things that we can do is we can teach the rocks how to think, possibly better than us. We can make them conscious, more conscious than us and we can talk to them. Isn't that amazing? Shouldn't be, is it be something that we try before we are done?
yeah, we, we have to squeeze out all that we can, all that what's possibly left. Um, I can circle back to a question that I had in relation to uh, your, your stance on the implicate order of reality or the implementation of in existence or of existence. Um, how does that relate to Parmenides and Heraclitus? And is it fair to say that they have distinct models at all? Or are they simply miscommunicating? I don't know that. So I haven't read enough of the uh, original material that's left. And I suspect that most of the original material is gone and has been uh, translated several times. And most of the stuff I only read as secondary literature. For instance, I noticed when I read Aristotle uh, that uh, most of what Aristotle has written has been retranslated by the Christians at some point and mapped onto a Christian metaphysics that then was retranslated into uh, the post-Enlightenment metaphysics. And uh, it's hard basically to recover the original intent of the thinking. I, I guess that Aristotle gets everything right to about 80%. For instance, he, he has mistakes in the way he defines formal logic that have been repaired later by Tarski and so on. But uh, it's good as an introductory reading in many ways. And as a thinker, he gets more things right than many of the contemporary philosophers, which is depressing also because it shows how limited our ability uh, is to make progress in philosophy. Every generation finds itself in the same situation that it needs to reconstruct everything. And uh, you're not always put onto the right trajectory to start with. True, true. Uh, like that, that is the problem with translation and transliteration I usually have when, whenever reading. You always seem to wonder whether this, is, this was the original intent, as you, as you said. Um, I was also wondering, since we had a conversation about psychoanalysis before, uh, what do you think about psych? Like, what is your perception about psychoanalysis as a whole? Maybe the Freudian model, maybe the Jungian model, maybe psychoanalysis just as, as a whole. Uh, as being an empirical man, what do you think of psychology and psychoanalysis? I think that psychoanalysis is not so much a scientific theory as uh, it is a philosophy. And... I, as a philosophy, I think it's pretty good. The problem is that psychology itself is largely a theoretic. It is, uh, has not developed a mythology by which we can derive models on how the mind works. And uh, this means that there is a big gap between um, clinical psychology and theoretical psychology or um, um, research scientific psychology. The psychology that is being done in the lab uh, largely doesn't apply to anything that people do when they uh, give therapy. And uh, the models that you have to be using as a scientist, and it's not only true for psychology, but sadly also for other disciplines, are different from the things that you can really publish about. Okay. Because uh, our science is set up in such a way that you can uh, publish the things that you can prove, or uh, th that you can prove within the constraints of a given methodology, uh, which doesn't mean that it's a mathematical proof, but it's basically something that you can sell as sound science. But uh, the interesting questions are not uh, being answered in the domain of what you can prove, but in the domain of what's possible, right? If something is complicated, you can very often not prove your understanding, but you are operating with a system of so many interdependencies that make uh, give you a consistent model, but you cannot necessarily track all the connections in this model and uh, uh, find evidence for the existence. The reason why the psychoanalyst uh, believes many of the components of his theory is not because he has an experiment or knows of an experiment that has ever validated them, 
but because the interdependence of these features makes it possible to reconstruct symmetries to explain why something is the case. And uh, this allows you to get a handle of the system that you're operating with. And the difficulty is for me if uh, people take Freud and take him, for instance, as gospel, that uh, they think that Freud had access to revelations that are not accessible to uh, the um, mortal scientist or the mortal psychologist. That is probably not correct. So uh, I think it's a good idea to read all these theories as stepping stones to build your own understanding of the system that you're looking at. And in the absence of a better theory, use the body of theories that is available to you to interpret uh, the mind of a person that is sitting in front of you and how to interact with it. Right? So don't uh, take these models as uh, 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 ultimate depiction of reality and check whether they're useful. And I think that uh, Freud has created some very useful theories. It's just uh, as soon as you are uh, taking these theories as um, something that has to be true because Freud said them, uh, you are setting yourself up for um, possible failures. Sure. Um, good to have this distinction and it, it goes to the point of the distinction within German and others. I, I've been recently investigating more of what is the science that I go to would promote instead of the Enlightenment science. Any distinctions between Gemut and Sin, which are uh, similar words to describe cognition in, in German, as far as I'm concerned. Gemut is more aligned with feeling and imagination, and Sin is intellect. Mm -hmm. um, so the Freudian project is more of a Goethean science in that the, the scientific process sort of starts with the hypothesis and then proves it as it goes on, more or less. Um, so the, the value of, of that sort of uh, the science is the, is the role of the, the scientist, not as, as this immortal revelator, but as, as someone who is deeply ingrained in the, in the practical or in the practice itself of, of, of the science. Um, so, I, I mean, to your point of almost that all models in psychoanalysis, although valuable, valuable lack a correspondence with reality. Um, might be correct, but you know, when we start in, in psychoanalysis, I, I at least lately have been coming from more of a Lacanian background. We start with the assumption that the unconscious exists. It, it, it's, it's sort of, it, we, not as an ontological thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's an ethic. The, the ethic of the scientist is to begin with the assumption that, that there is this known unknown. Um, and in the case of psychoanalysis, it, it, you know, the only rule really within the axiomatic or the, or the science to follow is to believe in the unconscious. So um, I, I don't know to what extent that's a model or, or just a, um, a way of practicing science and, and a way of reaching those conclusions that, that we haven't reached otherwise. So I would start out with deconstructing the notion of belief here. What does it mean to believe something? Is it a commitment that is going to diminish you if you were to give it up? Or is this uh, uh, just a uh, a space of theories that is productive to explore. And uh, yeah, so I, I think the former notion is problematic to me um, because it means that uh, if you were confronted with a theory that explains uh, the same phenomena better and you feel diminished if you adopt the theory, you are less likely to be truthful. And so as a scientist, I would reject the identification with the content of my theories. 
truth is a very brittle vector as soon as you add other vectors into the model, like things that you prefer to be true and that you negotiate the facts uh, against, you're not going to end up at truth as, as soon as the going gets more complicated. So uh, to me, uh, I, I think that when we have several possibilities in front of us, we don't uh, have the freedom to choose one. We have to remain agnostic. And we also have to quantify our agnosticism, which means we have to measure the weight of the evidence for the different theories. And so, uh, for instance, when you think about the uh, mythologies that we are sometimes presented with, for instance, the idea of a, a sentient uh, creator being that produces physics, based on the evidence that it's being written in a book and propagated by powerful institutions of people that are very, very certain. Um, right? Uh, what is the evidence for that being true? I cannot, uh, on first principles, rule out that it's true, right? Because I don't know how uh, I could make a mathematical proof that it's impossible. But uh, so it's, it's a space of theories that I'm not going to cut myself off from. There is a path into this space of theories. There is just no possible evidence for this hypothesis, which means I have zero confidence in these theories being true. And this is the way I try to relate to this. Now, with respect to the unconscious, uh, the question is for me, um, is this unconscious uh, loaded up with meaning that uh, is invisible to me? Right? We have this powerful pull towards symbols. You know, uh, who's buried below the obelisk? You know, you know that? It's always you. You are the chosen one. There is this deep meaning that is calling out to you that tells you that the universe is actually about you. The universe is your consciousness coming into existence. All, everything that happens here is a stage uh, in which we enact every person as hand puppets from our own um, godly perspective, right? I think this is uh, explainable how we would get to these perspectives and we can have lots of theories about them. It is not necessarily belief in any of them. It doesn't mean that we have to reject them. We can just look at them, we can examine them. We should not have emotions about them. And this emotion, the sense of uh, right, uh, the sense of epiphany, this uh, sense where your pupils dilate because you are connected to your source of meaning. This is the opposite of the state of sobriety that we need to strive for when we look for truth. Right? It doesn't mean that we have to reject any of these theories. It just means that we examine them without any emotion. We just look at them as models. And then we see where does this model get us? Um, what is the evidence that supports this model? What are the predictions that we can make from this model? Could this be the case? What would be the implications? So uh, for me, the unconscious is a very boring notion in a way. There are stuff that I consciously attend to and the things that I don't attend to, I'm not conscious of them. And the theory that uh, when I'm not conscious of them, they don't exist in my mind uh, is uh, apparently counterfactual because apparently my mind does lots of things while I'm not looking, right? So of course, most of my, what my mind is doing is unconscious. It also turns out that many of the operations that take place in my mind are not accessible to the kind of operators that my consciousness needs to integrate them into my memories. So I basically don't get into my low level perception because my consciousness is not able to dissect the processes that produce low level perception. Arguably there is possibly no way to make such things. Uh, the conscious thing is just models, right? Models of the model making. So the brain doesn't know what it's like to be itself. Uh, to be in a certain state doesn't mean that you know that you are in the state and what it's like to be in that state. It's a secondary model, right? It's part of your mind guessing at what other parts of your mind are doing. And 
uh, everything that's outside of this domain is necessarily not going to be subject to uh, the sphere of what's conscious. And so, yes, of course, everything, uh, almost everything is unconscious. And the things that are in your consciousness are constructs that explain the surface level for learning and later investigation. And most of what we access with our conscious mind is analytic, which means it's grammatical in a way. And uh, all these distributed neural networks that compute most of our perception are inaccessible to these operations, right? We just don't get into it. And we're not able to uh, drive this uh, analytic uh, dissecting arm into uh, this big forest of uh, the underlying um, structures that produce the contents of our perception. Most of our mind is perceptual and it uh, manifests itself at this boundary to um, our cognition as feelings, as uh, senses. And this doesn't mean that we can decompose them. Uh, we can decompose them, but we probably cannot get into them. So we can build computer models of perception. And we understand increasingly why these computer models are not uh, uh, suitable for uh, using grammars on them because grammars are not efficient to compute them, right? You need other structures to do this, more basic arithmetic, linear algebra, for instance. Um, I, I, I would elaborate. I, I agree with what you say about uh, the unconscious and, and also, I mean, the, the risk of clinging onto one model, I think uh, mm -hmm. is clear. Um, the aspect of having a known unknown, however, is, is something that theology I think does best, but I think that it's, it's useful so as an epistemic model. And in the case of Kant with the noumenon, to me it seems like the noumenon is this known unknown. And, um, and this is a, a secondary question, but that is related. Can we assume that from this unknown, which is for infinitely foreign, infinitely alienated, is there still some degree of information exchange between it? in the sense of can this fundamental uh, bedrock of reality have some communicational degree uh, to us or, or within uh, just the functioning of, of metaphysics in itself. And the question is more if, if, there's a, if, if information is the substrate of the universe and whether it exists in this noumenal world. I'm not sure if it makes sense to say that information is the subset of the universe. I think it's the basic component of our metaphysics. Information is discernible difference. And the meaning of information is its relationship to change and other information. And you cannot have uh, anything more than information about a thing, right? So every concept like electrons are a way to talk about information. Space is a way to talk about information. And all the objects that you're uh, aware of are ways to talk about changes in information. That's the, so uh, in this sense, uh, it's meaningless to say that the universe is, um, is information, but uh, because we don't know what the universe is, we cannot have information about what it is. What we can make is models that explain how this information processing works. And we can have theories uh, that operate at the lowest level of the manipulation of information. So we know what uh, information processing systems, systems that produce change in information are in principle capable of. And we can deduce that from first principles. But the situation that we are in might be similar to uh, a character living in Minecraft, right? You, you know this game of Minecraft and there are um, villagers in Minecraft and now imagine you have some very clever villagers 
and they uh, are even implemented in Minecraft in a similar way as you can, for instance, make computers in Minecraft from Redstone. And the computers that exist in Minecraft, they are slower than the computer that they run on because the computer that they run on is only using very, very small fraction of its capacity to uh, perform the operations of the computer existing inside of Minecraft, right? But it's still supervening on all in the same CPU. The entire giant world of Minecraft is all running on some kind of computer in a parent universe. And uh, the characters living in Minecraft can in principle never know what type of computer they're running on in the parent universe because this is not a property of the Minecraft that they're living in. Minecraft is implemented in such a way that it runs the same, whether it's on an iPad or on a Mac or on a PC. It doesn't care, right? It's an abstraction. And the only thing that you need is to have a computer that is able to go from state to state in a regular fashion and have enough memory. And once you have that, you can implement Minecraft on it. And every of these Minecrafts will have exactly the same properties because the cause of the closed level from the perspective of the observer embedded in Minecraft is going to be the world of Minecraft itself. You don't get below that. So you will never know uh, the shape of the machine that Minecraft is being implementing on, not uh, the, the uh, maker of the machine, not the color of the casing of the machine, right? All these things are unknowable. It doesn't mean that they are fundamentally alien. Uh, they are just not, you cannot even talk about the categories, right? right? You don't know the dimensionality of the system that is outside. You don't know anything about it and you cannot know until it has uh, makes itself known by projecting some kind of feature into your world that becomes discernible as uh, something of that parent implementation. And there's always going to be stuff outside of that parent implementation. And the only hope that you could have to ever get out of this is if you could solve the question why there is something rather than nothing from first principles. Unless you can do this, you will run into this boundary where you, this is just where you can stop asking because you will get no more information that would uh, give you evidence for any of the alternative theories. Right, in this point, you have to remain agnostic. Mm -hmm. So you have to remain agnostic if you live in Minecraft, whether you run on a Mac, on a PC, on something else. You cannot know. Right, you, you can't even begin to know the, the alien yeah. of the external world. It, it becomes the, the known unknown that we were discussing becomes an unknown unknown in some sense. Yes. So what we can say, it seems that our world is capable of running Minecraft. It is capable of going from state to state in a regular fashion. Everything makes sense once you start uh, introducing this possibility. Mm -hmm. And if you don't introduce these possibilities, you cannot make even make models of the world, but you can also not explain the fact why, uh, how is it possible that you can apparently make models of the world. And so it's a relatively cheap assumption to say that this world can be described in a constructive language. And then it turns out that all the other languages don't work to describe systems that, uh, that have these properties. And so we can narrow down the space of theories based uh, to those theories that we can describe in constructive languages. Is there any hope for poetic languages to become this, this central, as, as a final you know, humanist, uh, approach this would be very good Athenian and Heideggerian. Do, do we have a hope for our poetic usage of language to in fact circumvent all of these limits that usual languages allow us for? I uh, think that poetic languages um, when they are well done it's harder to write in a poetic language than in a formal language uh, because the criteria for when it's good are harder to capture. Uh, the, 
the quality of the poetic language uh, depends on the depth of your understanding of the domain. And you uh, basically use uh, additional modalities in the language to project your observation onto. And the difficulty with the poetic language that, uh, is that it might induce a trance state in which you uh, are no longer able to understand what it's doing to you. So for instance, it might induce an emotion that you consider to be correlated to understanding. Similar to the emotion of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is, I think, two things. Either you are writing off a debt because you realized it's not recoverable and uh, there is no more worry to hold on to the debt. So you would just even this out and uh, there is no more sense of that there is anything to get in this domain, right? So then you have forgiven the debt. And you might still have the information that you had to forgive a debt and this might inform your predictions for the future, but the debt itself is forgiven. Uh, the other thing uh, is um, in slightly different context that you understand what it's like to be the other and to understand why the other could not act differently in the circumstance. This doesn't mean that uh, there are not norms that, that uh, in a different context for somebody else would have prescribed to act in a different way, but given the context in which this particular agent was acting, this was the necessary course of action. This was the way the universe was going to be. And once you understand that, there's also nothing left to forgive. And in both cases, what happens on the experiential level is that the part of your mind that assesses the depth intuitively is going to let go of that notion that there is something that needs to happen before the world is uh, back in equilibrium. Right? You create a, a sense of equilibrium and the distance to this equilibrium, this injustice is gone. And uh, what some people try to do is when they try to forgive is they try to induce this emotion directly without changing the underlying representation that the feeling is indicative of, right? It's a perceptual mechanism that measures the depth. And before you have understood what is actually being measured, you might be uh, tempted to just induce the, uh, the emotion, the, the feelings sense by which the perceptual system would signal that there is no more depth. And then the next day you wonder why the depth is still there and you actually haven't forgiven. You just induce that emotion. And this also happens a lot uh, in the consciousness industry when people have uh, existential uh, uh, dread or pain and you resolve this existential pain by inducing the right sets of emotion. And uh, it uh, might last for uh, a few days even or perhaps even weeks and then it's gone and it's reverted and you, you need the next session. And it's quite productive for the one who is organizing these sessions, but it's uh, not dealing with the underlying condition. And uh, it's when you consume poetry, it's sometimes hard to understand whether the poetry that you are uh, consuming is true or beautiful. And uh, there is a big danger in uh, poetry that is merely beautiful and not true. Because so uh, beautiful uh, poetry is inducing nice emotions and uh, true poetry is observing uh, in a very elegant way. And the goal of poetry is basically to have this multimodal elegance, to use all parts of your available language to capture a certain uh, observation as well as you can. So uh, I think that uh, poetic languages make sense, but there, there are two modes in some sense of uh, making sense of reality. And uh, I recently uh, uh, dug out uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance as a metaphor. Uh, Robert Persick describes uh, the difference between what he calls a classic and a romantic mind. 
And the classic mind is the one that he perceives himself to be, uh, a person who understands the motorbike that he's riding on as an arrangement of parts that have to function in a particular way. And if that thing makes a particular noise, there's a very particular reason and you can fix it. And uh, then he has friends who are smart, well-educated and everything. And for them, the motorbike is a very amorphous thing that they ride on. And when this makes weird noises, you have to go on until uh, the verses get even more weird and then it has to go into the shop. But there is no way to understand what this, uh, how this operates. And there is a collection of images that uh, somebody can Google it easily, has uh, collected of people drawing bicycles. And it's quite hilarious, right? The way that uh, a lot of people are trying to reconstruct the shape of a bicycle. And it's largely not functional, right? The, uh, how is it possible that minds represent the bicycle in this way? And uh, is this the, actually the difference between romantic um, uh, way of thinking and romantic language of poetic languages and analytic languages? Uh, where the analytic language captures the structure and elegance and functionality of the bicycle. And the other one is just an arrangement of features that is sufficient to remember uh, that you had this object, right? So I wonder if this poetic language is largely indexical rather than uh, analytic. And this difference between indexicality and analysis means that the analysis has to reconstruct the function properties of the thing that you're describing. So it's recovered that you, if you were carrying this analytic observation into a different universe, you can build this object there. Versus the indexical thing requires the presence of this object in some context that is, uh, can be resolved by just pointing at it in the right way. So it's sufficiently disambiguated. And if you want to uh, build a machine learning system in this way, you would have one that is smart and tries to make a simulation of the universe. And then in the simulation, it identifies what it needs to simulate to produce a certain object, a certain thing in the universe. And the other one is just arranging the features, like a neural network that is arranging blobs of patterns in the right way. And right way just means bind them together. And if uh, you cannot discern the objects from others, you improve the discrimination by increasing the resolution of those features, right? So the poetic language goes into the textures, it goes into the colors, but uh, it doesn't really look at the, at the functional arrangement of the parts. It should, it should, but it doesn't. Uh, it, it, yes, so it's often a way out. And I find that many of these romantic thinkers uh, are drawn to anti-analytic arguments. And uh, this is a big red flag to me. If somebody thinks that Gödel's proof has somehow shown that mathematics is impotent at describing reality, and therefore a person who doesn't understand reality, uh, doesn't understand mathematics is uh, better equipped to describe reality, right? That is very suspicious. Yeah, no, it's, it's used the incompleteness theorem by many new age circles nowadays for that uh, purpose. Yeah. Um, Shkovsky, who was a Russian formalist, he said that the poet is, is more preoccupied with arranging images than creating them. So, I mean, that, that sends something to the necessity of joining the, the imagistic side and the symbolic side or the indexical side. Yeah, it's more like an aesthetic appreciation, if anything, that, that a poet tries to put things in an aesthetic way, or let's say even an artist, and it gives this deceitful sense of having some sort of a truth, but it's highly delusional because we think that it's beautiful. We might be able to think, we're biased towards thinking it as a capital T truth, which is not, which seems to be also the case with religion. They think that oral tradition 
is, is some sort of uh, truth to reality, but it's only belief system that, we, that we're accepting. But Orthodox religious people would regard this oral tradition and these beliefs and these texts as, as the ultimate truth, um, which is not rational at all, but um, that's, how they, that's how they believe. So it's a belief system uh, which should be allowed. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to take more of your time, but I have one uh, really good question uh, for you. Do you have a theory of emotions? And, and what do you think about emotions from a very, like from the mindset that you have, let's say if you're a functionalist and then you examine emotions, what kind of phenomenological sketch or, or just any sketch do you come up with? And how do you perceive the, the psychical elements of reality when you're more inclined towards the objectives of the reality? An emotion is a configuration of cognition, I think. So it's a way in which you relate to yourself and to the world around you. It's not a parameter inside of cognition, it's underlying it. And there's, uh, first of all, there are, you could say, proto-emotional uh, modulators. And these modulators uh, change the way in which you perceive things, in which your cognition works. Uh, some of them are uh, the way in which you evaluate things, so valence dimensions, so whether something feels good or bad, whether it's attracting you or pushing you back. Right? Th these are um, some of the, the valence dimensions. Also, the certainty that you have res with respect to an object, the ability to cope with this object, and so on. Uh, the urgency uh, that you perceive uh, while having to deal with this object. They're all aspects of, of this space. And there is um, uh, the, the dimension of attention, the attention can be deep. In this case, you are, it also tends to be narrow and it tends to be slow because you need to uh, recover a lot, a lot of detail. And uh, if the attention is shallow, it gives you faster results at the expense of resolution and acuity. And the attention might be directed on perceptual content or it might be uh, directed on reflection and cognition. And um, so it's inward or outward, so to speak. And um, the, the attentional parameters together with the valence parameters uh, uh, put you into a, a state of, uh, in a space of affects. And certain regions in this space of affects have names, right? We call them anxiety or elation or joy or bliss. And they are somewhat culture uh, variant because uh, uh, emotions are not natural categories, they're not natural kinds, they are perceptual gestalts that we extract from the space of affect that we are in. And then there are more high level emotions, which are distinct things like, for instance, jealousy. Jealousy is not just an affect, it's a particular type of negative affect uh, that is, uh, could be, for instance, anxiety or uh, fear, which is not quite the same thing. Anxiety is more about uncertainty uh, and inability to cope with the future uh, versus um, uh, fear is uh, higher certainty and it has an object. And uh, uh, jealousy requires that you have uh, a need for uh, an exclusive relationship to a partner and a representation that you have this partner and that you might lose it to somebody else. And if any of these elements is absent, you are, will not be able to experience jealousy. Right? You, this negative affect is the result of this experience and the anxiety is a description of the necessary affects. So you don't need to build emotion explicitly into the system. What is required into, uh, to build into the system that has emotion is a set of needs that the system uh, thinks it has or is implemented to have, so it behaves according to these needs. And uh, a set of modulators that um, 
adapt the cognition to a, a given state. And uh, this uh, is all implemented before uh, you are consciously aware of it. This analytic mind is a rather late innovation in terms of cognitive systems. Uh, rather, it has to be implemented on a relatively low level that is somewhat autonomous and doesn't require your conscious interference. So uh, emotions are communicated by the rest of your mind through your symbolic analytic mind via an interface. So a part of your mind that is unable to use language, is unable to manipulate symbols in a discrete manner, has to talk to the part of your mind that is largely conceptual and analytic and linguistic. How do you do this? You need to make them accessible as features in a space, right? And so these valence features in a space where the valence is something like a color and uh, a feeling of goodness or badness. And then you have uh, feelings of expansion and contraction and you need to locate them in a space to make them discernible. And the space that we have always available in our own brain that is always instantiated is the body map. So feelings get projected into the body map to make them distinct. The reason why you feel uh, experience feelings of social connectedness in your chest region is not because your heart is uh, uh, required for computing such feelings. It's uh, just a projection to make it discernible from uh, say uh, existential uh, anxiety, uh, which is uh, lower in the stomach or uh, uh, feelings of uh, power and competence, which are in the region of the solar plexus or of uh, social power, which are more in the region of the throat, right? So uh, th these notions of projecting feelings into the body map is relatively old. And I think it's just a biological adaptation that has led to uh, the idea of chakras, which I think that chakras are visualizations of feelings projected into the body map. So it's ways in which your emotion is configured in a particular uh, context, in a particular situation in your life, uh, being uh, projected into a static model that you can learn to perceive in others and um, basically you integrate all the features that you have available with, over that person, uh, over the entire context of the interaction, and then you visualize it and understand this is the state that this person is in. And you do the same thing with yourself. So you perceive your own feelings by analyzing the things that your perceptual mind projects into your body map about the relationship that you currently have as an agent to your environment. Does this make sense? It makes all the sense. It makes all the sense. It's very yeah. Merleau-Pontian um, from the phenomenological background, having the body as the locus mm -hmm. and sense maker. Yes, but I suspect that Merleau-Ponty has confused a lot of people because the body itself is not important for this. The body is, in some sense, the instrument that uh, is inserted by your discovery of the relationship in which you are to your environment. There is stuff that you can, uh, that you sense that you can immediately control. And these are your mental representations, right? Because they are immediate. You can change your ideas about the thing right now. And then there are uh, things that you can change your environment and uh, there are two steps removed. And the thing that is in between the instrument of affecting these changes in the environment before they become perceptible again and the loop gets closed and uh, these perceptions then turn into uh, reflections which are again ideas. Right? Uh, this is the body. The body is the missing link between your intentions and uh, the changes in the environment. And uh, so in this context, the body gets introduced. It's not quite the same thing as the body map. The body map is the thing that we can then uh, infer to be associated with your body. But the body map is a, a way to make sense of a certain modality of data that is available to you as a human being. 
uh, namely proprioception in the surface of your skin and so on. This, uh, these data fire in a, or are arranged in a particular way and we can lump them together because of their statistical properties and they all get routed to the same brain region based on these statistical properties. And this is your body map. And uh, to have a, a body map, you don't need to have a body, right? Uh, once the uh, body map is entrained on your brain, I can stimulate the body map and you feel, will feel a sensation as if it was in your body. And uh, that also works uh, if I uh, sever your head uh, at this fine and make it impossible for signals from your body to reach the brain. And uh, conversely, if I uh, supp uh, suppress this connection and stimulate your body, or if I su uh, suppress the activity in the body map in your brain and stimulate your body, you will not experience it, right? So the body map is necessary and sufficient for having the experience of your body. It's not your body itself. <laughs> so your body isn't actually not involved at all. It's just a mental model that is being in, that is involved here. The mental model is necessary and sufficient for the experience. And of course, uh, the existence of that uh, body map serves a functional purpose for the type of organism that we are. But philosophically, that's not interesting. Because it would also work if it didn't serve that purpose. It just has to be arranged in this way. The purpose is only the reason that evolution has arranged it in such a way. Mm -hmm. Understood. Mm -hmm. What do you think about asynchronous, like a causal parallelism? So it, it, it's called the C phenomena, and I think synchronicity. And I think Jung commented a lot after he had a dinner with Einstein. He went back home and he thought about the synchronicity aspect. And uh, Hans Berger, who was the creator of EEG machines, supposedly, he had this um, event of a synchronicity that actually led him to invent EEG. It's historically been recording these uh, letters between Jung and, and Einstein that were exchanged, which explains this kind of uh, lecture that he gave in this dinner table that he was having with him. And later on, he conceptualized uh, based on this I Ching book, uh, which is an esoteric book. Uh, from the Chinese tradition, the Taoist uh, tradition. Yeah, and so they talk about this, how A and B being two independent uh, localities, yet having the same event at the same time. Uh, and so I often wonder like how, how, how must one empirically look at synchronicity because it's highly psychical. And again, it could just be disregarded completely, but uh, it's, it still seems very interesting that two uh, events which are the same in essence have two different localities and still happening at the same time and 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 whether how can someone somehow objectively navigate to understanding this this kind of synchronous event and it makes ontological assumptions too oh yeah true 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 so i was looking at this uh, side phenomena when i was young and uh I found this, of course, very fascinating because there's the potential to completely uproot the way in which we make sense of reality. So we should pay a lot of attention to whether it's true or not. And it struck me that uh, almost everything that uh, comes up in this space can be explained by either psychosis or telepathy or a combination of both of them. And uh, maybe we can also explain the remaining instances of telepathy with psychosis which means uh, a way in which your brain models reality that is not indicative of uh, the observations, but of glitches and artifacts in the way that your brain models reality and the resulting dream is formed. There is some indication that this might be true because uh, for instance, uh, synchronicity increases in people that are in a manic state uh, 
uh, in this manic state can also, for instance, be introduced by psychedelic drugs or amphetamines. And uh, as a result, people will experience more and more of the synchronicity. And when uh, these people describe the synchronicity that they experience to a person that is in a sober state, uh, the sober person will often uh, find that the synchronicity is not that interesting, like that basically the way in which these phenomena are uh, connected appears to be spurious and not very meaningful, that the events are not as meaningful as they appear to this particular person. And that the gravity uh, that the person assigns to these objects and the resulting connection between them is a result of an overload of meaning that somehow uh, a thing uh, that is completely inconsequential, like say a coin that you find on the floor uh, and that you have dreamt before uh, last week, uh, that this coin is actually meaningless and that you might have dreamt about coins and that you find this coin uh, is just a random coincidence. And maybe you didn't even dream about this coin. Maybe this is just a, a deja vu kind of memory where the memory is instantiated in, uh, at a later point and uh, appears as a reconstruction in your own mind, as a glitch, so to speak. And you can only know this if you ha have written down your dreams meticulously an hour ago. And I found that a lot of people that uh, have regular prophetic dreams uh, notice this thing that as soon as the dreams are um, affecting an important thing in reality, like for instance, next week's lotteries numbers, the men in black show up and prevent them from writing it down. So they will not have a recording of that dream for some reason. And uh, right, that is very suspicious. It could be that the man in black exists because it would totally mess up this game reality in which we are if somebody is cheating by knowing information that they know only from outside of the game and the parent reality. But it could also be uh, that this is bullshit and it's a, a form of psychosis, a way in which your brain is making sense of reality that is not true. But let's for a moment entertain the possibility that it is all true. What would this imply? It would imply that the standard model of physics is probably wrong. The standard model of physics, we know it's not complete, but it is uh, able to um, predict reality at a very, very fine granularity to a, a very large number of decimal places. So uh, basically something would have to happen that is explaining um, uh, violations of um, the conservation of energy that we haven't discovered yet. But if spirits exist and move things uh, in the world, they must violate somehow uh, the laws of conservation, which, they, which means you would sooner or later notice this uh, because the numbers don't even out in the lab. If uh, there are physical phenomena, it means that there is an entire branch of physics that hasn't been discovered yet. And this branch of physics would probably involve a secondary topology. So uh, a way in which we can construct a space that is orthogonal to the space around us. So the things that are uh, adjacent to each other are adjacent with respect in our space to photonic interactions largely. And so uh, it's electromagnetic waves that we are perceiving when we see light. It's electromagnetism that we perceive when we touch solid objects. When we hear sounds, it's uh, electromagnetic uh, um, objects, the um, molecules of the air pushing at each other, right, that produce these mechanical waves in the air. Everything that we, uh, that our senses give us access to is electromechanical in some sense. And uh, even neutrinos and so on uh, act in this photonic space and can have interactions with the photonic space. And the weak force and the strong force only act at the uh, uh, distances of uh, the um, nucleus of an atom, which means that there might not even be 
in this three-dimensional space but might be in a different dimensionality, so to speak. So the, we cannot really project them into the same three-dimensional topology. And uh, if telepathy is possible, if, if this, uh, it uh, might introduce a different kind of local space that is not the same, where things are adjacent to each other in that space that are not adjacent in the photonic space, which means there is an entire set of interactions that we are somehow missing, or a way to interpret interactions that we are observing uh, we are not interpreting in the right way. The chances of that being true, that no physicist has ever discovered this and there is no experiment that we know of that is, would not be violated by this, uh, are slim. But it's not something that uh, we cannot completely rule out. Right? The more we know about physics, the harder it is to change it because we know more and more of the known constraints. Uh, and so, so the basically, it's not harder because we are now indoctrinated just with the physicists and don't want to deviate from their doctrines. But it's uh, because we know more and more about the constraints that all of our future models have to uh, account for if they want to make progress on the existing ones. And this is uh, why most physicists would tend to dismiss the possibility of telepathy, for instance. And there are several ways of looking at telepathy. There is a very straightforward and simple way that, for instance, uh, we can probably entrain ourselves with the nervous systems of others in such a way that we can basically create resonance effects that allow us to experience mental states together that we cannot experience individually. And it uh, might also allow to, in a non-verbal way, to develop ideas together, if you are really well synced, that can be interesting and uh, subtle. And that would allow to have communication between each other and uh, exchange thoughts without speaking. But it would require something like a close entanglement, usually in the photonic space, which means we have to see each other, maybe touch each other, maybe have, uh, having seen and touched each other for a long time. If we are able to send information to a person around the planet uh, immediately, instantly into their minds, we cannot explain this with known physics. Right? So if this kind of telepathy was possible, it would require us to rewrite two parts of the world. One is the idea that our own mind is generated out of our own brain. Uh, and the other one that, uh, that basically there is a, um, that physics is local with respect to light or to electromagnetism. The non-locality that we currently allow in physics does not allow the exchange of information because you cannot identify where the information comes from in this non-local fashion. If you cannot address it, if no, no observer, if no system that is controlling anything that is uh, performing any con function in the universe can know where the information comes from that drives it, it's just noise. Right? It is not going to be something that is going to drive the universe along. It would only work if there is some kind of regular structure that uh, would allow you to identify the origin of that information. But if we had such a second set of a local universe that is just doesn't have the same kind of locality as this normal three-dimensional universe that we are in, then uh, how would you know what the boundary of your own brain is? If telepathy is possible, how would you know which of your thoughts are actually being computed in your own brain and are not just being uh, uh, driving uh, your uh, parts of your brain based on uh, th things that happen outside of it, right? And if, if you open up this possibility, maybe there's a level of your own cognition and perception that is uh, entirely uh, driven outside of brains, that is driven somewhere else in the universe and you are just some kind of antenna for it and we all are and maybe there is some global brain, right? And then you will go into the domain of panpsychism and uh, 
uh, not a panpsychism where it necessarily the mind is computed in a parent universe and be, therefore becomes from the to the observer inseparable to matter, but there is something like a, a pervasive mind that is uh, 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 emerging over all the organized matter that is uh, that has controlled complexity, where some computation takes place to keep the universe in the shape in which it is, and uh, we are in some sense a small part of that and uh, can maybe link up to it, right? It's very tempting. It's also very romantic. I don't know if it's true. Yeah, yeah no, true. Uh, I was, uh, like, I keep wondering uh, oftentimes that when we talk about uh, telepathy and synchronicity, it seems to me like most of the subjective accounts I read, uh, some of them tend to be, you know, achieved in a sober states, but most of them are psychedelically induced telepathic kind of states. And, it, uh, and they tend to describe it as if you're taking, let's say, psychedelics with, with a loved one, with a friend, or even, let's say, a synchronous event happens when you meet another person who's in, within that same state of consciousness, but you have never met them before, but you meet them only because you know uh, through this kind of psychical understanding or this telepathic moment that this person and I person are sharing the same sort of heightened experience of consciousness or, or of reality. It seems to me that maybe maybe if someone was to, uh, you know, uh, mix the chemistry of the brain in, in, in a certain pattern, that these asynchronous events and telep uh, telepathic moments would happen more because it's essentially uh, playing with the brain chemistry. And, and also uh, there's something about psychedelics, which of course there's been a, a lot of research being done, but still seems to do no justice in explaining why these compounds tend to induce certain sort of um, psychical states, which are unexplainable. So telepathy or synchronicity often tends to happen. So I was wondering, do you think it's purely because of the chemical imbalance or, or even in a sober state, do you think there's some sort of a chemical or psychical thing happening in brain that does that? It's not something that often happens, but only because of a cause, which is psychical in nature that these events might occur. I think that ethanol, alcohol, reduces resolution. And the purpose of uh, social ethanol consumption is to reduce the resolution of all participants until they have a, a lowest common denominator where they completely match. <laughs> right? So uh, it's a good tool for uh, uh, having a sense of close connection with people that uh, have subtle differences to you. Mm -hmm. and Or at least or maybe not so subtle if you take more alcohol. <laughs> and uh, uh, there is, uh, with psychedelics, it seems to be the opposite. That is, it increases resolution. Mm -hmm. And if you increase resolution in a machine learning system, you are bound to overfit. There is probably for the set of sensory data that you are looking at in any given domain, an optimal resolution of the function that you use to describe it, to make sense of the data. It's something that we notice when we do statistics, right? You have a number of points and you try to fit a curve to the point. Uh, which complexity should this curve have? Should it try to reproduce all the wiggles that you see in the data or should it try to average a little bit over the data? And what is the resulting shape of the curve? Mm -hmm. right? That has to do with the noise that is apparent in the data and uh, in your sensory organs. So uh, if you have uh, enough time for evolving your uh, cognitive uh, domain in your brain, so how many uh, bits do you apply to model visual features or social features or mm -hmm. cognitive features and so on, you should in some sense allocate an optimal number of bits 
to this particular function that models this domain. So you're most likely to not overfit and not underfit. So you're not uh, losing subtlety in describing the thing, but you're also not discovering subtlety where there is none. Mm -hmm. And the criterion of whether you discover subtlety that uh, where there is none is how predictive is it of the future? For instance, I read an article uh, where somebody proudly reported that they discovered the uh, exact function that describes uh, the Californian housing market. And it was an uh, extremely elaborate function that uh, had lots and lots of uh, parameters in it, uh, like uh, growth of households, growth of incomes, uh, and so on. And uh, it exactly could reproduce the past uh, evolution of the uh, market of the price curve of Californian houses over decades. And as a computer scientist, I was looking at this and I was just laughing out loud because it was overfitting. This function had all these three parameters that enough of them and he twiddled them until the parameters gave a function that was fitting that thing. And if you have enough three parameters, you can always get a fit, right? Yeah. Uh, but this thing is not going to be predictive. So it's, it's likely that uh, in the future, this thing is going to deviate. And so the way in which machine learning typically deals with this is that we, um, uh, take a part of the of this curve and uh, take it out and use it as validation data. And then we, uh, we make it blind, uh, the learning algorithm blind to it, so we don't tell it this part. And we uh, try to find a function that guesses the invisible part and see how well it does this. And we do this for all the parts. So to extract all the information, we basically mask out every portion of this curve for different instances of this learning thing. And we try to find one learning, uh, one function that we can learn that works for all of them equally well, right? That predicts all the possible observations from all the other observations. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the best you can do under the circumstances, unless you have some insight into first principles and understand how this housing market actually functions by really going into the lowest level uh, of the causal structure and understanding it, which is not accessible, right? Because people buy houses and sell houses for so many different reasons that there is going to be practically for you a lot of noise because you cannot write down this term. Why uh, somebody died at this point and had to sell, uh, uh, the children had to sell the house uh, very quickly and so on, right? You cannot get all these things right. You only get statistical average right. So what psychedelics seem to be doing is that they increase the resolution dramatically. And what people often describe is that they're able to stare at any object, whether it's outside in, in the sensory domain or whether it's in their memories or imagination, and they can uh, discover unending detail. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have this increased resolution, you are prone to overfitting, which means you construct objects that can explain the past better, but the future worse. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the performance of people on psychedelics, they are able to explain the deepest problems of reality uh, extremely well, while uh, physically in this state, they are not able to uh, program a VCR. Uh, <laughs> or uh, but, but they're basically no longer able to interact with the environment very meaningfully, but they can explain everything. And uh, heavy psychedelics users also tend not to be the most successful people at predicting the stock market and so on. They might have uh, the ability to reach a certain insight when they're stuck. There have been some experiments where people think about a problem for a very long time. And then uh, they uh, were given in some controlled study a dose of psilocybin. And then uh, they had this um, insight that connected everything. And this insight was often a good one. Mm -hmm. right? So you're able to fill in the gaps. You're able to uh, relax your priors. You're able to see things from a new perspective. 
But uh, imagine you know in a context where you wonder whether telepathy happened and you interpret everything that happened in this interaction from the perspective, could this be the case? And you find lots and lots of detail that you've uh, put into your function that describes reality that uh, is establishing this connection. But it doesn't mean that the objects that you use to describe reality now are actually cutting the world at the joints. They might be overfitting. Mm -hmm. This is the big danger. What would it look like if a human brain would overfit data in the same way as the machine learning system does? Probably would like a human brain on psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, also, like uh, I often wonder, like when people say telepathy and, and, and synchronicity, people who do psychedelics often tend to explain that they travel dimensions and they ascend to different uh, sort of higher dimensional consciousness. And um, they often explain it in terms of spiritual planes or chakras that they're ascending essentially. And it seems to like there's one seven plane esoteric model, which seems to say that the highest plane of consciousness is this cosmic plane where everything is unified, everything is absolute, um, time is infinite. And, and when I read like string theories or theories of dimensions, which describe um, like one to 10 uh, dimensions or one to 11 or 26 bosonic dimension part the theories, I often wonder whether in a very weird way, if, if both these two different sciences are trying to understand the same thing in the sense that what is this highest possible dimension that one can either reach through physicality or through pure mentality or pure psychical powers. And like, it seems to me that it's possible with meditation and with psychedelics that one could reach those cosmic quote unquote planes uh, to, through those states. But when we talk about uh, a more and more functional and empirical understanding of the universe and whether what exactly are dimensions, I wonder what, what is physics trying to do in that regard? Are they also trying to find this one point or is, is it just structuring out whether there could be more dimensions than uh, one to 3D and then maybe more than 5D? You know, there is a perceptual bottleneck. Everything that you know, you know through uh, your sensory entanglement with the universe. There is a set of nerves that get stimulated and they uh, transmit electrical impulses into your brain. And your brain is constructing a function to predict the next set of uh, impulses. And these impulses have no valence. They have no good or bad. They have no color, no sound. There are no people traveling through these impulses. But, uh, there are no ideas traveling through these impulses. Everything is, must be constructed in your own brain. Right? There is no other way that when once you have that, when you, once you recognize this bottleneck. It's similar when you look at a screen. When you look at the screen, there are no people jumping out of the screen. There are no colors in a sense. There's only bits. And uh, bits in uh, three dimensions, which are happen to be these color dimensions, right? And they're being mixed together by your brain into a function that makes sense of these objects at scale. But uh, the fact that you interpret an arrangement of moving pixels on the screen as a person talking to, to you through a video conference call is uh, something that has entirely ha have to happen in your brain, right? It's, it's not a feature of the screen. It's a, a statistical property of the pixels on the screen that they can be interpreted as a cohesive object in a three-dimensional space that is being lit by a, a finite set of light sources and is uh, an arrangement of cells uh, that represents an organism, right? And so you can uh, project all this to make sense of that. It's the function that your brain is contracting. And so when you uh, have these 
as uh, existence. This is not uh, somehow a way to transcend this interface. There is no way to transcend the interface. You cannot get into the noumenon by any means. The noumenon is outside uh, behind the screen, right? There is no way to get behind the screen ever. What you are exploring are different ways in which your brain makes sense of that. And normally planes are able to your conscious experience. If you gain in these states some kind of synesthesia, then you are able to construct models of how your cognitions of different reality uh, planes in the reconstruction of your brain. So you get as the way geometry is constructed in your brain, maybe, to some degree. And uh, this is what I think these different uh, levels ultimately refer to. It's different domain which your reality uh, is by whatever does this. And we probably think it's mostly the brain that performs these operations. So it's, uh, the introspection is not going to give you access to physics. It's going to give you access to your own cognitive architecture. Uh, you're muted. I keep forgetting, sorry, you know, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, because I often would, you know, think whether people keep talking about, mostly within the esoteric um, communities, let's say, they often regard interdimensional travel and, and esoteric texts as, as the T uh, truth, the, the capital T truth. And, and, and sometimes when I try to introduce an integrated model, which tends to take, let's say, the esoteric and the physical physics and try to make sense with both of these uh, two different subjects, they would often say that it's a multidisciplinary approach and it might have its own limitations. But sometimes I think maybe the best way to understand the universe is to take all the disciplines together and, 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 and somehow try to construct a way, a creative way that uses each and every theory each and every subject to try to understand what is what is going on, why are we here, where are we going, all the, all the main five yes. But there is a confusion, that, and I think it's largely being introduced by religion. Religion is not a way to make sense of the world. It's a way to organize a society, in uh, a pre-enlightenment society especially. And there is an important insight in there. there is, um, most people are not very good at uh, making sense of reality at scale and in detail. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, it's very hard. Uh, if you have an IQ of 100, you are technically not able to read a complicated manual or do your tax returns. And uh, how can you make sense of reality if you have just an average intellect? This doesn't mean that you are uh, not able to be a capable member of society and have meaningful social relationships. You, uh, you can be extremely capable and so on. It's just uh, in terms of sense making of, uh, from first principles, you are going to be at a, a disadvantage. And the purpose of religion is to synchronize the behavior of uh, large numbers of people, both the normative, the moral uh, behavior, and the practical behavior and their beliefs about how reality works. And in order to make that happen, religions decided to have multiple tiers of access to reality. One is an access that is uh, basically Keegan level three. It works by projecting authority and projecting opinions via authority. And people are supposed to assimilate these opinions because the authorities know more than you do. And the authorities are clearly indicated by putting them on top of some pulpit, giving them a special dress and special titles and certificates that make them recognizable as authorities. And people will buy into the narratives of these authorities, even if they're complete fairy tales, uh, all because they're being punished if they don't. And that there are, then there are some people with the criteria for well, the story can be true. 
-hmm. And it's an obvious way to find out that this is true when you think about your own life, right? At some point, would you rec uh, recognize the narrative that you tell yourself about any given space as truthful? And uh, that is if it's supported by the evidence and you looked at all the alternatives and integrated them, right? So mm -hmm. you can only have the space of possible theories that can all explain the observation. That is the shape that whenever somebody presents you with something that's not that shape, uh, is uh, to have a chance to uh, evaluate it in the right way. It's the, the myth. Mm -hmm. And uh, mythology can be a useful tool to organize society, but it cannot be a useful way to understand society. Necessarily, if you build a society based on mythology, uh, it also means it has to be hermetic. Because uh, what happens if you have a competition between different interpretations of the myth? The whole purpose is gone, right? So you will have a canonical interpretation of the mythology that is being enforced, mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to be rational in public. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to be smart enough to understand that if you live in a religious society, if you live in a cult, you will not be allowed to be rational in public about any of the tenets of the mythology, because otherwise you will be punished, because otherwise the purpose of the mythology is going to be defeated. And uh, this hermetic society also necessarily means that there is going to be a domain in which adults are operating and they are completely rational. So they cannot be infected by the mythology. And every religious tradition is going to uh, produce uh, a deep mythology department, the mystics. The mystics are people that try to make the mythology compatible with rationality. So they don't give up on the mythology. They try to keep the tenets of the mythology intact, but they try to make inferences of it. So as a result, they break their brains. They start <laughs> levitating. Uh, they start to be in a magical universe. And uh, every couple hundred years, the Inquisition will go through the caves of the mystics with a big flamethrower and clean them out again. But uh, right, it's, it's a, a defect of mythology, the population make it behave. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing is that uh, mm -hmm. you don't understand rationality anymore, and you start believing your own mythology. Right, this is very dangerous. If the Pope ever becomes a Catholic, uh, they are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do you have any concluding remarks or any questions you wanted to ask? I mean, first of all, that it was um, sort of unexpected and just such a massive pleasure to, to, to be able to have a conversation with you. It's, it's been amazing. Likewise, I enjoyed this very much. Yeah, I, so, I totally uh, enjoy listening to you all every time. That's why I try to join as many clubhouse rooms with you as possible to, to get as much information in my head as possible. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been an incredible honor for me. And, and, and in terms of learning and, and getting this perfect empirical and functionalist approach, but also diving into the realms of the esoteric. Perhaps one quote that I remember that I suppose you told me once was that the mystic drowns in the same waters, the mystic swims in the same waters the psychotic drowns in, which seems to be a good quote By too. Herman Hess, I think. By Herman Hess, that's a, yes. yes. That's a good yes. way to conclude the podcast. But, but it's still a trance, right? Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, please don't be, present me as some kind of authority. I, I don't have any authority. I am just a guy who tries to think about these things just the same way as you uh, do. And everything I, I say 
can be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. I change my opinions a lot. I might perceive certainty whereas none. I might disregard alternatives. I do this all the time. And so this is all just a conversation that we're having where we try to develop our ideas as uh, thinking autonomous minds as well as we can. Yeah, that's beautifully put. That's beautifully put. And thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I, I can't. Uh, I'm, 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 I feel enlightened right now very much. <laughs> thank you again. Okay, see you again. Bye-bye. Take care. Have a good evening.